Welcome to the Scripture Study Project, a fresh and faithful study of the scriptures that we hope will renew your excitement for your own personal study and help you passionately teach what you're learning to others. I'm Krista, and I am here with my... I didn't even think of anything, but I'm here with my awesome husband, who is much more prepared and studious than I am almost all the time. You were shopping for Easter presents <laughs> while I was preparing the that podcast. That is true. I'm just prepared in different ways. We are juiced up on ice cream, though, and lots of uh, the little peanut butter cups, right? It's Easter, so I guess you have to be. We are excited to get into our episode today. We are in episode 17, and we're studying Mosiah 7 through 10, 19 through 22, and 25. And we will explain that later, the reason that we're kind of breaking up Mosiah, because as you know, the story is very, I would call it complicated, because I'm still trying to understand it myself. But um, And we're hoping that through this way that we've broken up the story, that we'll be able to um, teach it in maybe an easy-to-understand way, or at least an easier way for us to teach it today. So... Um, I'll let Zach get into more of that as he introduces the chapter. But first, we're going to start with our study tip for today. And the study tip is this. Helicopter, snorkel, or scuba through your scripture study. So this comes from something I believe I actually learned in seminary from uh, Brother Mark Eastman. And I learned it in these chapters, if I remember... The idea is that there are multiple ways or multiple depths at which we study our scriptures. There is a helicopter level where you jump in the helicopter and you cruise over the top of your scriptures looking for an overview or a bird's eye view of the story. You want to understand who's who and where's where and what's what. Which is really important for these chapters. Yeah. Uh, But then there's also the level where you get out of the helicopter uh, you put on your snorkel mask and the little snorkel, snorkel, I guess, whatever it's called. The air thing. The air thing. <laughs> and you get in the water and you, you're you still moving horizontally. You're still covering distance, but you now have the ability to dive a little bit. And so maybe you pause at a verse and you mark it, or you look at a footnote, or you write something in a journal. This is the level I think most of us consider when we think of scripture study. However, there is a deeper level, the scuba level, and this is where you throw on all of the gear, and there is no goal at all to move horizontally. You're not trying to get through a chapter or even 10 verses. You're trying to get deep into a single verse or even a single idea. Uh, This requires a lot more thought. If you think of scuba diving, you're going down deep to look at something, not just to go down deep. And so, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say maybe... More of a doctrinal study. Yeah, maybe. maybe. Looking for doctrines within the story itself. That's kind of what I think of with the scuba. So I don't know how deep we'll get in this particular episode. I do know that we have a pretty good helicopter that needs to happen for this episode to work. And we may do some snorkeling and scuba along the way. So here's your helicopter. And I'm going to time myself and see if I can do this in three minutes. So here we go. Mosiah chapters 7 and 8 don't really make sense unless you know a little bit of Nephite history. So, 80 years ago, before Mosiah chapter 7 and 8, there's a group of Nephites that want to reclaim the land of their inheritance, 
which is now occupied by the Lamanites. So they leave the land of Zarahemla and they go south, and we don't know what happened to them. When we get to Mosiah chapter 7 and 8, King Mosiah sends Ammon to the land southward to see what happened to that lost group of people. Uh, when he gets there, he meets or he's captured by Limhi, who, lo and behold, is the grandson of one of those original people that was lost. And so Limhi, in chapters 9 through 22, tells the story of his people. In chapters 9 and 10, he tells the story of, or Mormon, tells the story of Zenith, uh, who is Limhi's grandfather, who got the people in trouble in the first place. In chapters 11 through 17, we learn about Zenith's son who takes over, whose name is Noah. And you, of course, know the story of Noah and Abinadi. And we'll talk about that in an upcoming episode. While Noah is in power, chapter 18, we hear about Alma, who's one of Noah's priests. And we have this flash sideways where Alma takes a group of people and leaves. Then in chapters 19 through 22, we go back to uh, the land of Lehi-Nephi, Noah is dead, and his son Limhi takes over, and at the end of these chapters meets up with Ammon, so we're back to where we started with in chapter 7, and Limhi and Ammon are able to help his people escape back to the land of Zarahemla. Chapters 23 and 24 is a flash sideways and backwards a little bit. We go back to Alma, and we learn how Alma and his people escape and get back to the land of Zarahemla. And in chapter 25, everyone's back in Zarahemla. Mosiah throws a party and causes the story of Zenith and Alma and all of this to be read to his people. Got all that? Yeah. If that doesn't make sense, later on this week on our Instagram page, I will be posting a diagram that hopefully will help you make sense of this. These can be kind of confusing chapters because it's kind of like Mormon gets in a time machine and just travels around a hundred years of Nephite history. But what we want to focus on is this. And maybe before I read the verse, if I can tell you a stupid story, I heard this a couple months ago. I guess in Canada, two female prison inmates escaped from prison and were caught 24 hours later at, of all places, uh, an escape room, those places where you go and lock yourself in a room and try and get out within an hour. As if breaking out of prison wasn't hard enough, they had to go lock themselves in a room. Stupid story. But I like that story because it illustrates how often we get ourselves in trouble. And the story we're telling today and the lessons we're drawing today are, how do we get ourselves in trouble and how does God get us out? And so here's the verse. This is chapter 7, verse 15. This is Limhi explaining to Ammon their predicament. He says, For behold, we are in bondage to the Lamanites and are taxed with the tax which is grievous to be borne. And then in verse 20, That same God has brought, who brought our fathers out of the land of Jerusalem and has kept and preserved his people even until now, behold, it is because of our iniquities and abominations that he has brought us into bondage. In other words, we're in trouble and it's our fault. And if you just want a list of the troubles they're facing, start in verse 22 through verse 26 and he lists off their tax. They have to give up their fruits of their labor, their grains and their flocks. Uh, they have had contentions and infighting and, of course, contentions with the Lamanites that surround them. 
It's been really ugly for a long time, and it's their fault. So question number one that we're asking today is, what is it that they did that got them in bondage? And by extension, what is it that we sometimes do that puts us in spiritual bondage? Mm-hmm. So the first thing I noticed in these first few chapters was the word deceived. And we see it first in chapter 7, where Limhi is explaining um, how they got into bondage. And he says, Therefore they were deceived by the cunning and craftiness of King Laman. And then again in verse 9, you chapter hear... Nine. Or chapter 9, you hear Zenith saying... Pretty much the same thing as he explains his story. Now it was the cunning and the craftiness of King Laman to bring my people into bondage, that he yielded up the land that we might possess it. So basically that he was deceived by this cunning and craftiness that was happening. And how often do we have that today? I think today we have that all over the place. And something I just noticed as I read that last um, sentence in verse 10 that he might he yielded up the land that we might possess it. He was opening up space mm. in his you know in his in his kingdom for these people, almost like luring. I just picture him luring yeah. them in, and I mean we can all of us are going to have different things that we can liken this to, of how we let ourselves be deceived. Um, there's a lot of different bondages that we get into, whether those be physical um, addictions, whether they're, you know, maybe spiritual bondage that we're putting on ourselves. And to where are we letting ourselves get taken into by someone else? Yeah, I like even the way that you said that, that we let ourselves be deceived. Um, and that's kind of what he did too, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, blinded by his ambition. In fact, the point that I found is um, in those verses where it's describing their bondage, one of the reasons that Limhi says is that they would not, this is verse 25 in chapter 7, they would not hearken unto the words of the Lord. They wouldn't hearken unto his prophets. In fact, in verse 26, he talks about the fact that they slayed a prophet of the Lord. They killed Abinadi. Now, that part of the story is really famous. We know that Noah and his people rejected the words of King of Abinadi and that that gets them into trouble and brings upon them their eventual destruction. But that's not the only time they disregarded the prophet. I can't really identify with Noah. I'm not full-scale in rebellion against the words of prophets. I don't hate them the way that Noah seemed to have hated Abinadi. But I can relate with this. So Krista read this in chapter 7, verse 21. You are all witnesses this day, this is Limhi speaking, that Zenith, who was made king over this people, he being overzealous to inherit the land of his fathers, therefore being deceived by King Laman. And again, Zenith says this about himself. This is chapter 9, verse 3. And yet I, being overzealous to inherit the land of our fathers, collected as many as were desirous to go up and possess the land and started again on our journey into the wilderness. And that word overzealous struck me. It always does. Because I think I get that one. You get the sense from Zenith, especially if you read the rest of chapter 9, in the very same chapter where he gets his people into bondage, he also fights them out of the Lamanites in the strength of the Lord. You get the sense that Zenith isn't a bad guy. In fact, he seems to be a pretty good guy. 
He was just overeager or overzealous to do something that actually was contrary to revealed inspiration of prophets and apostles. That were telling them, in that case, to stay in Zarahemla. Right, right. King Mosiah the first, King Benjamin's father, receives revelation that he should take his people from the land of Lehi Nephi up north to the land of Zarahemla. So they're in Zarahemla by prophetic guidance. And I can imagine Zenith coming on hundred years later saying, yeah, but the Lamanites can't be all that bad. In fact, that's what he says in chapter nine. He sees them. They're not all that bad. Certainly this one commandment can be bent by me. Certainly I'll be okay if I go south. Certainly it'll be just fine. And that's one that I can understand because that's one that I do a lot. Certainly this one rule can be bent just a little bit. Certainly that one commandment doesn't really apply to me. It makes me think of President Nelson's cafeteria approach to obedience, right? We often pick and choose the things we want. And maybe we can even apply this in maybe being a little too independent from God. Hmm. Like maybe we're not calling upon him for his guidance and receiving that confirming revelation that they talk about when we don't understand the reason that we're getting directed from a prophet, or maybe we don't understand a counsel that we've been giving, but we instead just are overzealous and want to do our own. And I think of that as maybe a almost too, too independent. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe in that sort of an overzealous approach. And it's not that we're doing anything bad. I want to do something good. You're doing something good. But I'm running contrary to what prophets or apostles have asked me to do. Or if you're in bondage, you forget to ask God for help. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is a problem a lot of us have when we are faced with hard things. We think, I can do this by myself. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to do this my own way. Um, so maybe not even just necessarily the prophet's word, but also what's God telling me and how yeah. am I supposed to rely on him? Uh, that makes me think I just have this song in my head from my classic rock days but the fleetwood mac song you can go your own way i don't know the lyrics to all the song but that's what's running through my head now and that seems to be kind of what zenith did i can i can go my own way (laughs) i'll leave that to the professionals um this verse i think kind of proves somewhat i don't know damning uh this is at the end of chapter eight mormon's narrating he's doing his and thus we see He says, Oh, how marvelous are the works of the Lord, and how long doth he suffer with his people? Yea, and how blind and impenetrable are the understandings of the children of men. For they will not seek wisdom, neither do they desire that she should rule over them. Right? I can do this on my own. I I have a better understanding of it than some prophet does. And then this verse, 21. Yea, they are as a wild flock which fleeth from the shepherd and scattereth and are driven and are devoured by the beasts of the forest. So there's the kind of negative conclusion to part one. How do we get ourselves in trouble? Well, we allow ourselves to be deceived and we don't hearken to the words of prophets and apostles. We get overzealous in doing our own thing and going our own way. But there's a second part of the story. Um, Chapter seven, at the end of chapter seven, verse 33, I love this verse. If you will turn to the Lord with full purpose of heart and put your trust in him and serve him with all diligence of mind, if you do this, he will, according to his own will and pleasure, deliver you 
out of bondage. If you've been reading or studying anything from the Book of Mormon, hopefully you have learned the truth that not only God can deliver us, but that he wants to. It's his will and pleasure. And so the second question we asked ourselves is, how does God deliver us out of bondage? Or how do we, what actions do we do that connect us to his already running actions to deliver us? So first is this phrase that appears often in these few chapters, specifically here in verse 9. Um, in the strength of the Lord did we go forth to battle. And then again in chapter 10, in the strength of the Lord. And then he even compares their fighting versus the Lamanites that they fought with the strength of men. And, you know, we, as we were talking about this, you can't not talk about this because what you want to do, what makes us free is the strength of the Lord. But I think there's a lot of different ways that we could feel what the strength of the Lord is. So the question maybe we'd ask you is to think, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. What does the strength of the Lord mean? Um, and some of the things that we came up with that you came up with, well, I guess just, this is something, so I'll share a couple of mine, but I think, I think this is really such an individual thing that it's kind of cool. Maybe this would be the scuba study that you could do. Mm. What does it mean? What does the strength of the Lord mean? And we did look up a a couple conference talks. In fact, a couple have the exact name, Mm -hmm. um, that would be a fun extra study to do if you Google those. But, um, you know, I think in my own personal experience, the first, the first thing is to use, maybe how do I put on the strength of the Lord? Mm -hmm. How do I use that and really make it applicable? How do I make that practical? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I think of, and Elder Choi talked about this maybe last April or last October. Um, he talked, his talk was called look up, not around. And that's really been a principle that I feel like I have been taught lately is, that instead of worrying about what's going on around you or comparing or thinking maybe that you're lesser than people or more than people, look up, look up, don't look around. You get strength from God. If you're really wanting that strength from the Lord, then why do you, why are you worried about what's happening around you? But look up to him, open your eyes to him, open your ears to him. I love that scripture of you know, eyes to see. It says it all the time in the Book of Mormon and in the New Testament. Eyes to see, ears to hear, and he gives us a heart to understand through those things, that we're listening and we are looking at him. This makes me think of, sometimes I'll do this, where the scripture says this, but what doesn't it say? And I know these are laughable, but it doesn't say they fought in the strength of Instagram or they fought in the strength of the ward party, or they fought in the strength of this famous Twitter account, which is a lot of times where we go for strength. When I'm feeling down or when I'm feeling even bored, I go to, I look around, I look at something next to me to draw strength or inspiration or idea. Mm. And maybe this going to the strength of the Lord is me (laughs) spending less time looking sideways and more time looking up. That idea of creation versus consumption. Yeah. We're looking up to create something strong and powerful with God instead of looking around us to consume something else Yeah. because we can't, you know, anyway. Mm -hmm. And maybe to go along with what you're just saying is that God works in abundance. There is plenty to go around. He works with goodness and there's no need to compare because with 
with God on your side, you are strong in whatever you're doing. And, and I think, I guess these all really tie together. The last one is just knowing that God will speak to you. Look up to him, ask him, and you can receive his strength. There's a cool illustration of this uh, in chapter, well, it's hinted at in chapter 11 and then illustrated in chapter 21. Um, this is, I'm cheating because I'm borrowing from Abinadi, who we'll get to in our next episode. But Abinadi says this, It shall come to pass that except this people repent and turn unto the Lord their God, they shall be brought into bondage, and none shall deliver them except it be the Lord, except it be the Lord, the Almighty God. Which sure sounds a lot like things King Benjamin taught. In fact, if you want a nerd moment, there are a lot of commentators. Abinadi actually lived and taught before King Benjamin gives his address, many years before. Uh, I was listening just recently to some commentary on these chapters where it was proposed that Abinadi might be the angel that shows up to King Benjamin and gives him that sermon because the language is really, really similar. At any rate, same principle. Only Christ can deliver you from bondage. And so to illustrate that, in chapter 21... This is Limhi and his people, and they're trying to get free. They've had enough, and they want to get out. In fact, Limhi says, The people began to murmur against the king because of their afflictions. They began to be desirous to go against the Lamanites to battle. They did afflict the king sorely with their complaints. Therefore, he granted unto them that they should do according to their desires. They gathered themselves together. They put on their armor. They went forth against the Lamanites to drive them out of their land. And it came to pass that the Lamanites did beat them and drove them back and slew many of them. And now there was a great mourning and lamentation among the people of Limhi. Verse 10. There were a great many widows in the land, and they did cry mighty from day to day, for great fear of the Lamanites had come upon them. And it came to pass their continual cries did stir up the remainder of the people of Limhi to anger against the Lamanites again. And they went to battle again, but they were driven back again, suffering much loss. Verse 12, they went again the third time and suffered in the like manner. They go to battle three times of their own strength, trying to fight their way out, and it doesn't work. And so in verse 13, they did humble themselves even to the dust, subjecting themselves to the yoke of bondage, submitting themselves to be smitten and to be driven to and fro and burdened according to the desires of their enemies. And they did humble themselves even in the depths of humility. And they did cry mightily to God. Yea, even all the day long did they cry unto their God that he would deliver them out of their afflictions. There's a couple of points to take from this. The first is clear. We cannot get ourselves out of bondage by sheer force of will. We cannot free ourselves from spiritual trials or from spiritual temptations especially if they're ones we've brought on ourselves, just by our own zealous, striving behavior. Without God on our side, our efforts will be like those of Limhi's army, and they'll be fruitless. However, God does deliver his people. In verse 15, even though he's slow to hear their cries, nevertheless, the Lord did hear their cries and began to soften the hearts of the Lamanites, that they began to ease their burdens. Yet the Lord did not see fit to deliver them out of bondage. It came to pass that they began to prosper by degrees. And so point number two is, 
God will deliver us, but sometimes, in fact, maybe many times, we're not delivered immediately, but only prosper by degrees. Elder Christofferson gave this quote um, a couple of years ago. He said, real repentance, real change may require repeated attempts, but there is something refining and holy in such striving. Divine forgiveness and healing flow quite naturally to such a soul. And so I believe, in fact, I know from my own experience you can't fight your way out of spiritual bondage, whether that's temptations or whether it's addictions. You can't fight your way out of it. You are not strong enough. I'm not strong enough. We need to be able to fight in the strength of the Lord. We need to be able to be humble and allow him to deliver us, even if it's just prospering us by degrees until one day we're delivered. President Bednar shared a story of when he first got put into um, as president of Rick's College. And they were in a big meeting. A lot of changes were being announced about Rick's becoming BYU-Idaho. And he said, um, as they walked out of a building that night, one of my colleagues asked, President, are you scared? As best as I can recall, I answered something like this. If I thought we had to execute this transition relying exclusively upon our own experience and our own judgment, then I would be terrified. But we will have help from heaven because we know who is in charge and that we are not alone. Then no, I am not scared. And I hope that as we use these ideas and as we allow God to teach us and to help us and to heal us, and as we're looking up, that we can remember that when we're on God's errand, that we don't need to be scared. So that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and just a quick reminder that we did start an Instagram account called The Scripture Study Project that we will be posting about episodes and study tips and additional insights into these chapters that we're talking. So we would love to see you there. Um, would love to hear any of your comments, anything that you've been learning. And we're just grateful to have you here. We'll Thanks. see you later.